in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight, please. 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Summary, message of the gospel which saves us is the person and work of Christ. Jesus Christ, that's the person, and Him crucified, that's His work. That's the core message that must be believed, as Paul says. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Tonight we're talking about Christian spirituality. We are uh, seeing Christian spirituality. Uh, what are some prerequisites or a, the attitude prerequisite um, tonight? Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, what you notice is Paul has contrasted what others have expected with what they got. Sometimes our expectations do not uh, bear out in our experience. What we get isn't what we expect. And with God, as we're going to see in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what you get has to be way much infinitely better than you are capable of expecting. And this speaks to our culture, to our time so much, because we are in a a time of the question of relevance. We're in a time of, is the Bible valuable to me where I live in my experience with what I'm after? Okay, what do you have, preacher, that's going to help me? What is this going to do for my life. Well, the equipment has failed us again. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Father, we bless you and praise you for eternal life, for the prerequisite, the ultimate prerequisite in our attitude that we would walk with you, that we would recognize who we are, who you are, and think accordingly. We've studied it every time we've assembled, Father, that we have to humble ourselves before you. Equip us to do so tonight as we bow before the word of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I took a course in um, education uh, at the behest of my professors. It was a required course in the program I'm in, and uh, I did not want to take it. I like the professor who taught it. He doesn't need to know that because he's still responsible for my process but, um, that I'm going through. But um, I really liked who taught it, but I didn't like it what it was. It was a course in education. And I don't want to take education courses. I want to take courses in in the Bible, in Greek, in theology. I want to learn about God. I don't want to learn about human theories of education. But um, it was one of the most effective things that I've done because it was a helpful look at human nature. And the most important thing I learned in that course on teaching adults is something that you probably know without even knowing it. But adults in America will not learn something They will not spend their time on it or commit it to their memory unless they can see the value of it to their life experience before they even try to learn it. I think it has to do with maybe um, all that geometry you memorized that you've never used. You think you've never used it. I've never bisected uh, an angle I've never dropped a perpendicular except helping my kid do his geometry homework, right? And so we learned all these things in our education process, and we didn't know why we were learning them. And then somebody came along and said, I've worked in 
retail for 30 years and I've never done any Pythagorean theorem. I've never done any of this algebra. You don't need to know all that. Well, the truth is you do all that because you're training your brain in logic. You're training yourself to do certain things that, you know, you're not going to do those particular processes necessarily, but your, your brain is getting organized when you do that. And, and that's the process. Well, something happens to us. I think it's arrogance and it's also economy. I've only got two hands. I've only got seven or eight pockets on my whole suit. If you count everything in the shirt, right? I mean, I can only carry so much. So I've got to assess whether I'm going to pick that up or not when you try to hand me something. And so I'm just going to, well, how am I going to use that? So tonight I thought I'd go through the, the 11 or 12 main uses of the genitive case in Greek. Won't that be edifying for you? You can find an example of every one of them probably in each book of the New Testament or several of the books of the New Testament. And, and we could spend the whole night just talking about genitives. And you're, most of you are like, a genitive? I don't even know what that is. That sounds like something crazy that's so technical and far removed. And it is. I mean, you don't need to know about the genitive case. But you know, you do need to know in English where the apostrophe goes. Have you seen people trying to pluralize with the apostrophe? Just for one example. Every time someone says more than one of a thing, they put an apostrophe because they've forgotten everything they've ever learned in any grammar class. Do you know that? I mean, let's talk about some practical wisdom. There you are in fourth grade, and your teacher said, let me see if I can switch this over. Your teacher said, girls. And what that means is that there are more than one girl. Girls. But when you did that, your teacher, I mean, your third grade teacher or your second grade teacher said, this means that the thing belongs to a girl. It's a girl's. Know what I'm saying? But what's happened? Everybody puts that for plural now, an apostrophe S, if you want. You can call that. It's still doing it. A mystrophe. I am on a roll. You don't have the heart to tell him. All right, let's do it again. This belongs to a girl. This means there's more than one girl. See what I'm saying? You're like, again, pastor, this is not relevant to my life. It is. We look like idiots now as a civilization because people are putting this for plural on signage out in front of their businesses. People are doing things like important correspondence. We're not taking questions right now. Important correspondence where we're having apostrophe S as, as the plural. And I know I'm using language to describe this grammar, like plural and possessive. But it is relevant. Now, the problem is that in fourth grade, the Americans who are now probably mostly millennials that can't figure this out because they're playing video games <laughs> instead of thinking, the, the millennials that are doing this to our language now, um, they either have our autocorrect going in their text messages or what, I don't know. But um, what's happened is they couldn't see the relevance of possessive versus plural in third grade. And they're good Americans. Why don't you go back there and ask her? It's okay. So is it relevant? Was it relevant when Mrs. Beatty, my second grade teacher, said it? Yes. Could I see its relevance? Nah. But here's what happened. I cannot look like a total idiot by pluralizing with an apostrophe. Now, I was going to say, before I messed up my, my screen up there, kind of, kind of rusty for some reason. What I was going to say is, um, I call, when you use this uh, apostrophe in a wrong way, I call it a mystrophe. You can use that. Some of you remember what sniglets were. When you make up a word that kind of captures, that's called a mystrophe when you don't put the, the apostrophe in the right place. Anyway, by the, by the way, that's a genitive in English. That's how we express it, the possessive genitive of the apostrophe S. But you don't need to know that. What we're talking about 
friends and neighbors, interested believers, what we're talking about is relevance. Now, the problem, I said millennials, the problem of the question of relevance isn't new. It's not just in our time. It's just alive and well in your culture. The Apostle Paul dealt with it 2,000 years ago in Corinth in a church that he planted. And the thing was, they said, we are not stupid. We are educated people, and what you're saying doesn't sound very polished or refined. In fact, we've heard five or six really good orators that don't think like you at all, and they make sense to us. The Judaizers could come behind Paul, who has a very plain presentation, Christ and him crucified, and they could add all kinds of false teaching that is not from the Lord Jesus Christ, but if they said it in a polished and packaged way, then, well, why not go with these guys? And Paul is going to tell them that your problem is authority. Your problem is that you don't understand what an apostle is or what I'm doing in your life, what I'm here for. And this question of relevance, truly, when someone with authority says, you need to know this, like God says, you need to know this, we don't need to ask, well, I don't know if, I wonder if I need to know that. The authority answers the question of relevance, doesn't he? I gave it to you because I love you. I want you to have it. So if, if the person is, is valuable to us and we value his love for us, then we're going to pay attention. And that's the basis, that attitude is the basis for this entire ministry, for what we do here in this civilization. Well, while we're talking about our culture, let's look at it for just a second. Do take note. I'm going to draw some pictures. Kids are working on the Christmas play and a little, little skit they're going to do for the Christmas sing-along this year. And um, we've got a couple of characters that they're going to uh, present to you. One of them looks kind of like this when I draw him. Make sure I get this just right. Everybody see that okay? Despite the fact that it's yellow. He's not a very attractive person. He doesn't have much to say that you want to hear either. You don't want to see him or hear him, but his name is, anybody know what his name is? You have to stop talking during the teaching of the Word of God. This is a presentation for you so that you can understand. Sit down and shut up. Right now. This person's name is Wanty. He's got a relative. Anybody know what his name is? Yeah, Needy goes right along with Wanty. That's how you draw on Needy. And um, got to use the blue. I had another blue. Oh, there we go. Needy, let me write his name. These are people with problems. The person in need actually is hungry, can't cut, can't pay the rent. There's something that they, there's a real need, and we would draw the line. Hasn't got access to clean water, like in the missionary world, okay? Real need. But in our culture, we talk about people that are needy, but we don't mean they have real need. They have first world problems. They want attention. They want people to pay attention to them. They want to be stroked. They want someone to, you know, to love them the way they think they should be loved and, and, and approve of them the way they want to be approved of, and, and they're, they're wanty. So I'm invalidating them by calling them wanty. And I'm talking about myself. It's a problem we have. We want, but we don't have. Well, a lot of times we just lust. We just want something we shouldn't want. And so um, both of these people uh, are addressed beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 3, 3. Both of them are, but they don't know it. 
Because wanty can't see past his lust and needy can't see past his grumbling stomach to eternity. And both of them, if they're asking the question of relevance, is this relevant to me? Is this really going to change my life? They can't imagine how what Paul is going to offer would change their lives. And if you're going to be distracted by your felt needs or your lusts away from the eternal riches of God's word, you're going to find yourself in a hole you can never dig out of. Because the solution is Jesus Christ. The solution is the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of God the Holy Spirit. The solution is described by the Apostle Paul. I want you to hear it. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual, spiritual words with spiritual men, really. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Is it possible that when we get in a rut, when we start seeing true needs or start feeling, guilt, feeling self-pity about our lusts not being fulfilled, is it not probable that we've asked the wrong question? Like, what do I need? Or what do I want? Isn't that likely? We've asked the wrong question. I mean, we've, we've got the wrong answer. What do, I, what do I want? What do I need? We're not asking the question uh, at the feet of God, at the feet of our Savior and saying, what do you want for me? See what I mean? That's the biblical worldview shift that needs to happen for our friends needy and wanty. Now, Paul's whole problem that they've missed they haven't understood. The whole key that unlocks the treasure at the end of the rainbow. The riches which we can't even imagine because they're beyond anything we've seen or heard or even thought of depend on one critical word that the Corinthians have missed. The Prestonians have missed. The Ledyardians have missed. The people of Connecticut and New England and the United States and the wide world have missed. We have lost it as a civilization. We used to have a, have a clue about this, but we have completely rejected it. And it is in our hearts to reject it. And I hope you know what this word is. Because it is the problem of the Corinthians and it is the problem of me and it is the problem of you when we're not spiritual. What is that problem? Anybody know what it is? No? You are right, but you've you got to play what am I thinking. But you're right. But that's, that it, This is a form of uh, an issue in carnality. They, I'll give you a hint. They won't listen to Paul. Huh? Okay, and if you're, if you're arrogant, what, what's, what's, what's your, what are you doing? Yeah. Proud and pride and arrogance, flip, flip the same coin, two sides of the same coin. Okay, the word is if you don't orient to God's authority, you are carnal. You're walking according to the flesh. 
Guess where the greatest debates in church history live? The question of authority. Is it in the Bible or in the priest? Am I, am I the authority or is God the authority? Are you the church or do you come to me as the church? See the difference? You're the ch- we're, church. Church universal, right? It's always been about authority. The problem in Corinth is they don't know what Paul is. They think he's a guy and they can recognize he's educated, but he's not much of a public speaker. Not very polished. And his arguments, they're not that elegant. But they're used to elegant arguments and polished rhetoric and really being convinced by human reasoning of anything a debater or an orator wants to convince them of. Back in these days, a town would have a town uh, rhetorician or orator. It was his job. He worked for the mayor. He would go up there and give a speech, an elegant speech with stories and images and rich poetic language and reasoned argument to bring the majority of the community who cared to listen to the newspaper to get them to agree with the party line of whatever the town mayor or council had decided. It was the job. He was the seller. It's like the media today. Whoever's running, whoever's running that, the, the, the news readers are, oh, they're just reading black and white news. No, they're telling you the story you're supposed to believe so you make the decision that you're supposed to make. And this has always been, and this is not how Paul approaches it. He comes with something infinitely more valuable, but it's a, it's, it's a treasure in an earthen vessel. He shows up at, at rough hewn. He's, he's, he's got some gnarly feet, walking all that thousands of miles. He's not an oppressive person when you see him. And yet he's saying, what I have is of infinite value, but the only way you're going to get it is if you submit to it. If you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore to those he's delegated with the authority to teach his word. In this case, we're talking about revelation from God and this mystery that was not known by the world or the rulers of the world. The elites of the world do not understand this infinitely valuable treasure. They reject it and they Uh, As he says, do not welcome it. In verse 14, the soulish man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. Have you ever tried to argue Scripture with an unbeliever? It's a really worthless endeavor. It does no good to argue Scripture with an unbeliever because the riches of God's spiritual truth are foolishness to the man without the Spirit that is from God. The unregenerate person has no access to these things in terms of welcoming them. They seem foolishness. A naked man nailed to a Roman cross, a naked peasant nailed to a cross is the big symbol of your faith. There's no more humiliating death than hanging up in between heaven and earth on a billboard as a Roman dissident. See, this is foolishness. The cross is foolishness to the world, as you know. And so this really comes down to authority. Now, I want to show you something. If you look in your Bible, I'll go through it in the presentation in just a moment. But it says, we do speak wisdom, in verse 6, among those who are mature. And you know, I translate, I, I think what he means is that in the assessment of the mature person, when they hear what Paul has to say, someone that is attuned to the word of God, hears the word of God and can discern and reason and identify it as wisdom. The evaluation of someone mature in the word, when they hear the word, they say, that's the word. They have the discernment. But guess what? The Corinthians have no idea the value of what Paul is saying. It is pearls before swine. Paul's riches that he has to give them from revelation that he received from Jesus Christ mean nothing to them because they are acting and thinking like unbelievers. As he says, you're carnal, you're thinking like mere men in chapter 3. 
And it all comes down to authority. Here's the question. How can baby Corinthians who have no discernment whatsoever about the truth of the word of God, or as we'll say, American evangelicals, how can a baby Corinthian ever have that kind of discernment to say mature? He would have to first say, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He would then have to say, whatever Jesus has for me is better than anything I can have for myself. And then he's going to have to say, I'll accept it. And he'll take it the way Jesus dishes it up through the apostles. And if Jesus wants to send gnarly old little Paul, little Saul of Tarsus with his rabbinical stuff that he doesn't even carry his, his medals around anymore. He doesn't even flash his diplomas. He's just showing up as a peasant looking guy himself. He's not even a pleasant peasant. If that's how he wants to do it, if that's how God wants to do it, well, you're God, I'm not. If you want to do it, Lord, and send someone looking like Elijah into the wilderness, crying out to Israel to repent for the kingdoms at hand, if you want him to never cut his hair because he's a Nazarite, if you want him to eat locusts and wild honey, if you want him to dress in camel's hair and a rope belt, to God be the glory. It looks like a crazy man out in the wilderness. This last of the Old Testament prophets named John we call the baptizer. However you want to do it, Lord. You're making your point. We're, we're going to submit to it. And you know, that old song, Farther Along, it becomes more and more relevant the closer you get to the Bible. Because the more you read in the Scriptures, the more you realize there are things that God has told us that we have to take on faith, and we are not going to be able to visualize them. We will see them when we see them. But until we see them, we're going to have to trust God about it. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so Paul is taking us from the wisdom of the world and everything you can get from somebody besides an apostle into the riches of the, the, this, this treasure trove, this vault that's miles and miles and miles deep and long and wide under the mountain of God's grace where he has in this treasure vault the riches of his own self-disclosure, the mysteries of the things of God. And that's what Paul is on earth to teach. And it's not stuff that he thought of. It's not he's, he, was, he was a theologian and thought up some great theological ideas. He's just a, a vessel used by God to speak the word of God. And you can't try to compare him with these rhetoricians, mainly because it's apples and oranges. Paul has authority delegated to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. And these others don't. You know why we don't like authority? Because we're arrogant to the core. Because our hearts are wicked. And because we don't want someone to tell us how it is. We are naturally, from the broken factory, broken this way. We, we scoff and chafe against it. Back in the old days, back in the 40s and 50s, they thought they had figured it out. They called it reverse psychology. If you want the children to do something, tell them to do the opposite because they won't do what you tell them. Do not close that door when you come in the house. Well, I'll close the door. And so now the kids are closing the door because you, you, you recognize this human nature of rebellion and revolt against the creator, against authority. Well, wait, 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 pastor. No, no, no. I, I want to humble myself before God. I do want to, but the authorities are always bad. So it doesn't work. You say you, you recognize authority, but it doesn't work because the authorities abuse it. Because all the people in authority are sinners, like Pastor Dave, with the authority that God gives pastors and elders. I have authority. It's a limited range of authority, but I have certain responsibilities that are entrusted to me. And, well, I'm a broken person, so we can't follow any human authorities because, I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul was guilty from time to time, probably daily, of anger or desperate. Uh, uh, he could probably get into bad moods. He could probably look at his circumstances and say, I can't believe everywhere I go there's just a riot. There's no success. And all of a sudden, you know, he gets, gets his head right and the letter comes from Timothy about Thessalonica. And he's like, they are preaching the gospel all over Macedonia because of me, but, but I left after a riot. You see, Paul is just a broken human like everyone else, but he's spiritual and that he has the word of God in his heart. And he's got the spirit of God in his heart and the word of God plus the spirit of God is spirituality for us in this age. And the enablement of us to walk worthy of our calling 
in the power supplied by the Holy Spirit who uses the word that he's put in our hearts. This is spirituality, but to get it, Corinthians, we've got to get with authority. That's the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I thought tonight, you know, I want to make this, I want to show how this is relevant in its context because this passage is one of the most challenging in the New Testament to figure out all the specific details that are being presented. But the concept of authority is very simple. Now, does anybody here know what authority is? See, most people in your culture today, in your postmodern culture, believe authority is the power to abuse others. That's what they think authority is because we're so anti-authoritarian. They don't understand authority is the only preservation in human affairs against the self-destruction of mankind. They don't see it as a good thing. We see it as a, as a bad thing, authority. Because of its abuse, obviously. I know a lot of people who think any expression of legitimate authority is an abuse. If you ever exercise any authority, abuse. How do you get that? Because you're arrogant, because you're in rebellion against your creator, because you don't start with humility before him and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. You don't have a spiritual attitude toward God. That's your prerequisite. You start off with the flesh and you end up with a rejection of authority. Authority is a real simple concept. Every husband has it over his wife. It's the Bible. Headship is authority. Did I say every husband has the right to, to abuse his wife? No, he's responsible for God not to abuse her. It's quite the opposite. So what do I mean authority over? You mean over and under like a woman is supposed to submit to her husband? Only according to the scriptures. Only by the way God made us. Only according to the design of the God who loves you more than you could love yourself. So how, what are we talking? What is authority? Well, start off with it's not what the world says it is. It's not what the world says it is. It is God showing up in the flesh saying, follow me. It is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, seeing a fisherman who's pretty good at it, but who'd do a lot better if he would just follow Jesus and be a fisherman of men, saying, drop that net and follow me. I have work for you to do. Authority is a husband loving his wife self-sacrificially and then insisting that this is how we operate as a household. We love self-sacrificially as a Christian household. You know what authority really is? Do you know what it is? I I teach my kids this. You have authority, little kids. Single ladies, you have authority. Single men, you have authority. Married men, you have authority. Married women, you have authority. But you're not in charge of everyone you see. Right? What is authority? It's very simple. It's really simple. Somebody is responsible to make the decision. And authority can be seen as the right and responsibility to make decisions. Authority. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen that? Did you know you were born with authority? Your mom and dad, when you're a little baby, tell you what to do. They say, eat your lima beans. And you say, ugh. And you feel like you don't have authority over your stomach. Because my, thor- my stomach is going to revolt, and we will not be able to hold down the lima beans. Right? Well, the truth is that when, when you get told, when someone tells you what to do, they may be in the position to make that decision, that what we should do is what the teacher says, take out your pencil, authority. Teacher has the right to say it. You have to make a decision if that pencil's coming out. You have the right to decide whether you're going to be a criminal or whether you're going to be a citizen, whether you're going to obey duly constituted authority or you're going to revolt against it, whether you're going to serve the God who delegates all authority from heaven or you're going to serve Satan who revolts against divine authority. That's, that's, that's how it works. So every level of decision-making, even the, the little kid in, in, the, in, the, in the classroom, has authority to make a decision. Now, careful. The teacher has the right to decide whether or not it's time and it's the right thing to do to take out the pencil at this time. The kid doesn't get to decide that, whether it's right or wrong. 
The kid gets to decide whether he's going to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. And so they're different decisions. The teacher's decision is a different decision than the child's. See what I mean? I mean, this is all common sense, but we can describe it and get it pretty complicated if we want. Pastor Dave, I decided what to teach tonight. I talked to the Lord about it. I studied all day. Many days before, prayed about it. Said, what is the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we're fixing with this spiritual versus carnal versus soulish? And I end up with, the problem is authority. And the prerequisite to spirituality is humbling myself under the authority of God. If I do it, then I'll listen when he talks to me. And I won't ask, is his word relevant? I'll say, God, change me as you've promised to do with your word. If you turn, please, to James chapter 1. In your Bible, James chapter 1. Where's James? Well, it's after Hebrews. We have a promise in James about this. And we should settle all questions of relevancy for us. Is everybody's life just perfectly on kilter right now? Is your life just perfectly, is, is, this, is, the, is the ship just on glassy sea right now? Or are you um, having to row a little bit against the wind here and there? Doesn't everybody have friction and challenge in their lives? You know what? It needs to be for the Lord's sake. You need to be God's person serving him. Watch this in James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He says, various trials. You're going to suffer. Consider it joy. Count it all joy. Guess what kind of word count it all joy, count is? What kind of word that is? Don't tell me genitive. It's not. It's a verb, but do you know what kind of verb count it all joy is? Do you know what he's saying? Is he suggesting that you count it joy? Is he asking you to count it joy? Is he saying you might think about counting it joy? Or is he, the, the elder, James, delivering a command to his audience? Is it the word of God? I'll take it as a command from the Holy Spirit. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ and obey him through this portion of his scripture, I need to count it joy when I suffer under trial. Why is that relevant to you? Because you're going to have trial and now you know what to do about it. You're going to suffer. You know what to do about it. Think about it. Think of it as a cause for celebration. It's not an option. It's a command. Now, James has the right to issue that command. The Spirit of God certainly has the right to issue that command. The Lord Jesus Christ has the right to expect that of you. These are all authority claims. Now, you've got to make a decision when you suffer. Will I choose to consider it a cause for celebration? Will I consider it to be for my good? Will I count it joy? And... You get to decide whether you're going to serve the Lord or not. Now, how do you do that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay, I can think about this hardship because I'm remembering God is making me trust him and it's bringing about the improvement of my character in endurance. Okay, God, you got a purpose in my suffering and now I'm thinking about it. I'm not just focusing on the trouble. I'm thinking about what God is doing in the suffering. He says various trials consider it all joy. So this is what you do when you hit friction, when you hit hardship, when you hit a, a, a hard countercurrent. You say, okay, I'm going to trust you. And this exercise of my faith is going to bring about greater spiritual endurance. You're building me into somebody more than I was before I went through the trial. And now I can rejoice because there's a good outcome. That's what James chapter one, verses two and three does for you in terms of God's commands and your responsibility to obey. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. So, okay, James, under the Lord Jesus, is telling us 
that we're going to have to go through trials and tribulations and suffering in order to be matured into the character that God wants to bring forth in us. Don't ever, ever, ever say, why is God letting this happen to me without letting it creep into your mind? I need to go back to something in James chapter one for this. The reason you're encountering the trials and sufferings is for your good, for your maturity. Now, verse five, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. First Corinthians chapter two, we speak wisdom among the mature. The spiritual information for how do you live your life before God that Paul has to teach the church, the mystery of Christ. This is wisdom from God. If any of you in James 1 lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. For he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unable, unstable sorry, in all his ways. So the big, the big idea is you've got suffering that brings about maturity, but you have to think God's thoughts about the suffering in order to, to, to bear up under that suffering. And when you can't, when you don't know what to do about it, ask God for wisdom. It's all related to this issue in chapter one of suffering. Sometimes the hardest moments for us to submit to God's authority, to say, God, you be God and I'll submit to you. You have your own way, Lord. Not my will, but your will be done. When we put on Christ and we say, God, you have your way. Sometimes that struggle we're going through, that trial, that hardship, that's when it's the hardest to say, God, have your way. Notice that Jesus Christ as our example not only our Savior, but our model, our example, Jesus Christ said those words, have your way, Father. Not my will, but your will be done. He said, your preference takes, takes precedence over my preference. He said that in the greatest moment of anticipation of suffering ever endured on the human race, ever in, in all of human experience. Relevance, yes, the Word of God is infinitely relevant and you know what i like to say about this question of relevance you know what i like to say the god of the universe has called you to serve him in his mission he's called you by the grace of the gospel of jesus christ to serve him in his work he's put his spirit into your heart forever to produce the character of christ and to equip you and empower you to do your part of his mission the question will never, for someone like you and me called to this mission, it will never be, is the word of God relevant to my life? It will always be, God, make me relevant through your word to your work. And that's humility. That is true Christian humility. It's the prerequisite for spirituality. We do speak wisdom, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 2, and the evaluation of the mature. Now it is not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the concealed or the hidden mystery, which God ordained before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age have known, for if they had known the mystery, but they didn't, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What I'm trying to say is that your friends, your family, even you and me, when we're not thinking eternally, when we're not thinking spiritually, when we're not in a frame of mind empowered by the Spirit of God to think in terms of God's wisdom, we don't even have the, the ability to assess God's Word, God's wisdom. Nobody has it. You can't get it from a university degree. You can't get it from multiple terminal university degrees. All the king's horses and all the king's men could never put together what God thinks and come up with a reasonable explanation for truth and reality. 
the project of the philosophers has been going on since before anyone spoke Greek. And they'll never fix it. They'll never figure out what God tells you by his revelation. And what I'm trying to say is there has to be a strong, hard and fast separation in our thinking between what man can accomplish in his fallen estate and his limitations and what God thinks and who he is in his infinite righteousness and perfection. We have to see that holiness of God, that utter distinction. And when you understand that, and that God is breaking through time and space to speak to us through the apostles and prophets of the scriptures, this is not from this broken source of man's limitations and sin. This is perfect, holy, righteous, and good. We have been visited by an unbelievable miracle, an an unimaginable miracle in that God has given us what the Apostle Paul wrote. And think about it. Think, just think. Paul goes into Corinth and the people are kind of scoffing at him. The Christians that he has evangelized, that he is, will say to them in his letters, he's their spiritual father. They're kind of, you know, they're kind of panning him. Kind of embarrassed for him. Not much of a speaker. Did you just hear the guy that was up on the rostrum last week? Now that guy was a speaker. And what, they, what they've done is they think just like the world thinks. Corinth is extremely applicable to American evangelical dumb. Extremely applicable. You could even say it's relevant. It's a mirror of our time. Would the rulers of our time today put Christ on the cross? Or have we, have we as a civilization moved beyond the sinfulness of man and the revolt of the rulers of mankind against God? Are the nations no longer revolting against God in Psalm 2? Or are they still kind of raging against the Creator, trying to throw off His yoke? We could illustrate popular morality today. What is the moral? What is mora- Think about this. What is right and wrong in your culture? What is right and wrong about It's wrong to hurt someone's feelings unless they're a religious person, especially Christian. But generally, don't be rude to people and don't hurt someone's feelings or say something that they won't like. That's that's one basic morality. Now, mom taught us that, right? That's good manners. Don't be offensive to people. Sexual morality is consent. And right now, I thank God for this, right now, consent between adults, not consent of an adult with a child. This is coming. This will be part of your civilization or the, the disintegration of civilization that we live in. But con- sexual morality is not marriage. It is consent. She said yes instead of no. Then it's okay. Then that's, that's legitimate. And it's now wrong. It's immoral to say no non-marital sex is fundamentally disordered just for the most important example that you can think of oh it doesn't all have to be about sex a lot about sex it really does what's the point the point is that the world is no better now with all our advances than it was in jesus day or in paul's day when the rulers of the world and the most Law and order society of its day found a way to crucify the only man who never committed any personal sin, never hurt anyone, never infringed on anyone else's legitimate authorities and rights to make decisions. We're no different. We're no better. And yet our children will go to the world to find their morality. They'll go to that world of the rulers that today would just as much crucify Jesus Christ to find the truth about our origins, the truth about, uh, about, about creation and how we came about, the truth about right and wrong. We'll still go to that well, that poison well. And we'll disregard the treasure trove under the mountain of God's grace 
that is the Word of God. We said 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 is about the things, the wisdom of God in a mystery, okay? What is verses 9 through 12? And we'll close on this thought. Just as it's written, what things the eye has not seen, the ears have not heard, also into the heart of man have not entered, what things God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has prepared for those who love him. We said verse 9 is not one of those verses that you can look up in the Old Testament. You can't find an Old Testament scripture. You can't find an extra biblical scripture from the Apocrypha or something else that says these words in this sequence. But what we do find throughout the Old Testament is that God is saying, look with your eyes, listen with your ears, reason with your heart. This is how you get to know me. And I think this is, I think he's referring to Isaiah chapter 6 with the prophecy of Isaiah and his calling to ministry. That's, what, that's, that's where I would go for this. You keep preaching until the whole country is destroyed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to me. What do we do with our eyes? It's amazing. We use them to look at anything but our creator. I think it's really neat that he gave us a written word and we use the eyes to read it, to observe it. But what you get in the thoughts from reading God's word is not what you get from looking at other people or things. The eye gate is basically a distraction. So is the ear gate. Who likes music in here? Who likes to listen to music through the day? I challenge you to listen to country music these days because you'll hear our radio spot. (laughs) Inviting people to consider the, the, the original Christmas. But we, we love the ear gate. We love to hear and dance around. We love to see. We, uh, in our time, are more distracted by our eye gate, especially our little boys, than we ever have been, I think, or ever could have been in the past. There has never been anything like the visual cranial stimulation that we're doing to ourselves with uh, visual entertainment. The more I read about this, the more I study about this, the more I think about this, the more I am a, a complete opt-out of all of it person. Just. But um, the reason it's such a problem is distraction. See, he just told you to close your eyes. If you want to get the riches that he is trying to give you, you can't get it from any visual stimulation. You can't climb a mountain and see the vastness of a beautiful winter landscape that takes your breath away, and you worship God for making such beauty. You can't get it that way. The things we're talking about are the thoughts of God, which he gave us through the apostles. It's what we have in the New Testament. That's what he's talking about. Do you value it that way? Are you ready to put everything you could ever see into one entirety, everything you could ever hear, every thought you could ever think or even imagine that you want. Let's put wanty back up there. No, we're not going to do that. Everything you could ever want. Just imagine that. Put it all over here on the scale and then say what God is offering through the apostles and prophets is infinitely better. The scale is so overweighed by God's revelation and compare, and I, I don't feel this way. I don't think these thoughts. I think this because it's what he says here. These are the things God has prepared for those who love him. And then here's why I, why I want you to be encouraged. We don't just, well, are we waiting for heaven? Is he talking about going to heaven? No, but to us, God has revealed these things through his spirit to us. And I take us to be the apostles because the context is they won't listen to Paul because they're not impressed with him. And he's saying, Friends, you are looking and hearing and reasoning with the world, but I'm trying to show you that there's a treasure vault miles and miles deep, wide and high, under the mountain of God's grace that he is trying to deposit 
for you. He's trying to share with you. The vault is flung open and I, we the apostles are the only ones with the keys. And inside that treasure trove, it's the word of God. And that's the value. This is what life is really about. This is the good stuff. Now here's what happens. Here's what happens. We say, I'm, I'm talking about this. And we say, yeah, uh, is anything on TV? Let's go, let's go get around with our friends and, and hang out or something. Let's do something. I just, I just don't, I just, okay, okay. Now let's, now let's take somebody that's an exceptional spiritual Christian and evangelical dumb. Ezekiel 12, it just fell open, so I'll read a verse. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Like, like can we go out and play? And, and, and that's about what the Bible is to most Christians, I think. Because this passage is hard to think through. And you have to spend a little time thinking about it. You have to little, spend a little time digging on it. But I want you to see what verse 9 is doing to you. It takes everything you can ever imagine. Everything within your native life, including all the friends and relationships and all the goody of life that you can think of, and it throws it off the table and says, now let's eat. It says there's nothing in the world like what God wants to give you. And you have to get it through the apostles. And a very, very, very few people in church history have listened carefully and said, okay, I don't feel this way necessarily. I can't imagine it or think it or reason it or see it or hear it, but I will believe it. I believe what Jesus Christ has given me through his servant, the Apostle Paul. I believe it because of a, a number of reasons, but I'll believe what he's saying here. And I'll trust him and I'll order my life accordingly. I'll make the word the focus. I'll be about the riches that God wants to give me, that he's revealed through the apostles, through his spirit. And if you'll do that, you will become a mature Christian. You will become one who discerns all things and is discerned by no one. Because only somebody with the perspective of the word of God that maturity has can understand the way maturity thinks. Because you're thinking like God. And that's what you're made to do. It's amazing what God did when he made us. In other words, I think we are on a tragic course. I think we're on a tragic course in civilization. I read so much. I'm being assigned to read things that I'd never want to read, and I never want to read them again. And I read and I read and I, and I think when I read this, it's so easy compared to reading some of these scholars who are so intelligent. And after you've spent 15 minutes trying to sort out what did he do with this paragraph, you say at the end, oh, that's his point. Huh. Someone printed that. But it's a genius. The guy's, the guy's brilliant. It took all that time to reason what he, what he thought out. And then we come to something like this and we say, these people are spinning their wheels. Because the riches are from the apostles. This is what spirituality is about. It's about the Holy Spirit that you submit to God so that the Spirit of God who lives in you empowers you and teaches you His Word so that you're, through His Word, thinking and acting appropriately to your position. <clears throat> Do you understand your position? It's the most important thing I can tell you. Just come down and look you in the eye, get all 3D with you. Moving around, the, the cameras are giving up. See, when we go over time, we've got to do extra, a little extra. Is everybody hot? Just me. You're cold? 
Now, for you to act as a Christian, for you to act according to your position, you can't do this by being a goody-goody. You can't be a prissy Christian and act according to your position. Energy of the flesh, I'm just going to really strive to do, to do good boy, to be a good person. That's not what we're talking about. You can't do it in your own power. Because what we're talking about is acting and thinking like Jesus Christ. Because your position, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is that you have put on Christ. When you first believed in Jesus, you were baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And so you share Jesus in his past, present, and future. Let's talk about present. What does it mean that you are in Christ right now? What is his experience now? What, if you're in Christ, where is Christ? Where is Christ right now? If that's true. Where is Jesus now that we can say you are in Christ? Who knows where Jesus is that's under 12? Where is he? No, I mean the body, the resurrected body, bodily Christ. His per- He's at the right hand of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. I believe the tabernacle and the temple is a, is a model of the heavenly temple. The heavenly throne room of God where there's God's really real throne where he sits. And at the right hand of God is a human being, a resurrected, the resurrected Jesus Christ. That is your position. Exalted, glorified, magnified. How do you live like that's who you are? How in the world can you walk in your daily life with your sin nature? With the people in your life that aggravate you? With the lust of the eyes everywhere we look? With the desire to be self-glorifying from our own inner lusts? How in the world are you going to walk out and live out this position you have in Christ? You are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. You walk as a believer in Christ, representing him by the Holy Spirit. It's going to take God's work in you. It's going to take him to express himself through you. Now, don't lose it and get mystical. Don't give up on thinking because you're a thinking being. That's how God made you. He wants you to take his thoughts. Like tonight, the thought is, what is the word of God? It is the treasure that everyone ignores. It is the infinitely valuable treasure that the world cannot see and you can't get it except from the apostles and prophets. That's the message. We take that truth that we've distilled out of the first couple of verses. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9. We take that thought and the Holy Spirit makes it real to us. We ask God to bring it to our memories, to refresh it in us. We even memorize that quote. Pick a, ver- pick a translation. Pick you a Bible translation. I recommend the King James for memory work because it's designed. It was written, translated for memorization. Things which the eye hasn't seen, neither has ear heard, neither have they entered in the heart of man. I'm paraphrasing King James. These things God has prepared for you, for those who love him. This is something to keep in your heart, to remember, to think about, to to take out and to refresh. But as you become characterized and saturated with this thought, the Spirit of God expresses himself through you. You start to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You start to love as you've been commanded. You start to rejoice as you've been commanded. You start to be a peacemaker. You start to have some patience and some kindness and some gentleness. There can even be, watch this, self-control because the Spirit is exerting Himself through you. This is Christian spirituality. But he that is spiritual, someone saturated with the Word of God. This is life. This is what you've been called to, young men. This is the riches. This is the legacy. This is the inheritance that God has laid up for you. And if you ignore it, it's your so great salvation. If you ignore it, as we've said, you are squandering 
the greatest resource, the highest, greatest gift that's ever been given. I used to say your life is the most valuable thing you have. In a way, I agree with myself. Your life is the most valuable thing that you have. But if you waste it, if you take its value away, instead of living your life as you've been designed, then it loses that value. Don't squander this awesome gift. I challenge you. Memorize verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Commit it to memory. And remember what he says in verse 10. But to us, God has revealed these things through his spirit. It's not a wait for heaven thing. This is for you right now. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for sharing yourself with us, for opening that treasure trove through the apostles. We don't value your word like we should, as often as we should. We can all confess that. But you can change us. You can transform us. You can give us your perspective about yourself and about your word. Father, do this work in us. We pray for it. Just like we're taught in James, give us wisdom abundantly. We want to be, like Paul says, the mature who can appraise and do not need to be appraised because it's the expression of your Holy Spirit your word, your son's character through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.